Just one other thing that's happening this week is we have uh, the CU camp, Pinelands High CU camp, led by Ian Parsons and a number of our young people. That's happening next weekend. Please pray for them. And if you get a chance, send Ian a WhatsApp and tell him that you're praying for him and thinking for him. And then I think John Ray may need to be facing some more back surgery. Um, yeah, we're really upset about that. Um, we'll pray for you afterwards as well. Uh, but please think of John and Ray. They've had endless troubles with, with John's back, and we're, we're thinking of you. Right, this morning we're continuing with the sermon series we began last week called When Jesus Confronts the World. We're looking at Matthew chapter 8 through 10. And just to remind you a little bit about the structure uh, of chapters 8 to 10 and whereabouts we find ourselves, in these chapters, Matthew gives us three groups of three miracle accounts interspersed with examples of and teaching about discipleship. And so these chapters are really asking two primary questions. Number one, who is this man Jesus? And number two, how do we respond to him? Last time we were together, we looked at the first three uh, uh, miracles, the healing miracles. And this morning, we're going to have a look at two examples of discipleship and then uh, two of the next set of three miracles, just so you know whereabouts we are in the series. Let's have a look, though. Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 34. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, and reported all of this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. This is God's word. 
As I said, Matthew's chapters 8 to 10 address this whole question of who Jesus is and our response to him. And that's clearly reflected in the passage that we've just looked at. The disciples ask the question, who is this man? And then we also see at least three different responses to Jesus. Uh, we'll do what we did last time and we'll, we'll look at those three incidents one at a time uh, and we'll pull out a few things as we go along. But in order to emphasize this double theme of identity and response, we'll look at the second two incidents first and then come back to the first incident, if that makes sense. Firstly then, in in terms of who Jesus is, we see Jesus' power over disaster in the calming of the storm. At the beginning of this passage, we read that when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. And that's actually already a significant statement. Earlier in chapter 5, we read that when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Later on in chapter 9, we'll read that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. But here, Jesus sees the crowd and he asks his disciples to cross over to the other side of the lake. Matthew is simply picking up something that Luke tells us in his gospel, that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. In other words, there's a time to teach, there's a time to have compassion, and there is a time to withdraw and be with our Father. And it seems to me that Jesus' other ministry, his teaching, his compassion, his healing, his miracles, flowed out of a deep, intimate relationship with his Father. Jesus, as God, stayed in contact with his Father through quietness and solitude and prayer. How much more don't you and I need to do that too? This past week, I was at a Pinelands Ministers Network. We get together about once a week for prayer and then once a month for a meal. And uh, during the session, one of our missionary ladies spoke a short sentence which she thought was important for us. She said, less doing and more being. Less doing things for God and more being with God. Because in fact, if we spend a good portion of our time with God, that in fact will lead us to doing the right things for God. It's possible to try and do a whole lot of things for God without actually cultivating a deep, personal, intimate friendship with God. Well, that's the first point. We haven't even got into the rest of it. (laughs) So Jesus gets into the boat, his disciples follow him, and then Matthew tells us, without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping It's interesting that the word Matthew uses for storm here is the Greek word seismos, which generally means an earthquake. It's where we get our word seismology from, study of earthquakes. Some powerful force has turned the Lake of Galilee into a washing machine. And it's interesting that later Matthew will say that Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves, which he normally does to demons. He rebukes demons. So this is no ordinary storm. 
In fact, it looks like another attempt by Satan to finish off Jesus before his work can be completed. Just as earlier, Matthew had told us about Herod's satanically inspired idea to kill all the babies in Bethlehem in an attempt to get rid of Jesus. The incident is certainly speaking about the fact that this world is not the way it is supposed to be. To use the words of the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, this passage demonstrates creation's bondage to decay. Last time we were together, we saw how disease was never a part of God's original good creation. Well, so-called natural disasters are equally not a part of God's original perfect world, and one day they will be over. Whatever the storm was, we, we know that it's a dangerous situation and lives are at risk. Verse 25 The disciples wake Jesus up saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. And he replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? That's something of a catchphrase, isn't it? We use it even in a secular context, oh, ye of little faith. The disciples shouldn't have been afraid because Jesus was with them. It would be a little bit like me walking in a foreign village in China And having one of the chief villagers accompanying me and talking to the shopkeepers and other people on my behalf, no reason to fear. Or like walking down a dark alley with a United States Marine on either side of me, no need to fear. You see, if the disciples had truly understood who Jesus was, then they wouldn't have been afraid. They've got enough faith to turn to Jesus to ask for help. I mean, he's not even a fisherman, he's a carpenter. They've got enough faith to recognize, well, we should ask Jesus, but the fact that they're so terrified and their astonishment when he actually pulls through for them shows that they haven't really come to grips with who Jesus is, and that's why their faith is so small. But Jesus' next actions demonstrate to the disciples who he really is. Verse 26, Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, And it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. The penny is beginning to drop. I think it's very important to to recognize that the deeper and broader context to this passage. I love the sea. I love watching the sea. If I get to walk next to the sea on my day off, it's been a good Monday. I sometimes enjoy kayaking on the sea when I get the chance. The Israelites were not lovers of the sea. To them, the sea was a terrifying place. It contained monsters like Rahab and Leviathan and other unspeakable beasties. In heaven, as far as they were concerned, there would be no sea. One of the the reasons the Israelites knew that God was so powerful was because of the fact that he ruled the sea and all of the monsters in it. He was the one who at the very beginning had separated the water above the earth from the water under the earth. And he was the one who'd separated dry land and sea. Again and again, the Old Testament celebrates God's power over this terrible monster, the sea. So, Psalm 65 You answer us with awesome deeds of righteousness, O God, our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the furthest seas, who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of the nations. Or Psalm 89, O Yahweh Almighty, who is like you? You are mighty, O Yahweh, and your faithfulness surrounds you. 
You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Or Psalm 104, at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. And then there's a fascinating passage in Psalm 107. Psalm 107 is a beautiful song. It speaks about various groups who get themselves into trouble, and God comes through and rescues them, and they're encouraged to praise God. So some are lost in the desert, others are prisoners, others are sick, and each calls out to God, and each are rescued. And then from verse 23, we read this. Others went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his powerful deeds in the deep. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm. And he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. Matthew and the other disciples knew their Old Testament. Only God had control over the winds and the waves. And so they exclaim, who is this man? Often we read this passage and we think of it in terms of God, or Jesus rather, stilling the storms in our lives which is a valid point. But the main point of this passage is Christological. It points us to who Jesus really is, not merely what he will do for us. This is Jesus as God displaying his authority over the wind and the waves. And as God, Jesus is worthy of worship no matter what he chooses to do in our lives. Sometimes he does indeed still the storm But sometimes he leaves the storm unstilled for a greater good. Last time we were together, we looked at Paul's thorn in the flesh, whatever it might have been. Paul asks God to take it from him, to relieve his torment, to still the storm in his life. And yet God's answer was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. This week I came across a song by Scott Cripien. Uh, which includes these words. All who sail the sea of faith find out before too long how quickly blue skies can grow dark and gentle winds grow strong. Suddenly fear is like white water pounding on the soul. Still we sail on knowing that our Lord is in control. Sometimes he calms the storm with a whispered peace, be still. He can settle any sea, but it doesn't mean he will. Sometimes he holds us close and lets the wind and waves go wild. Sometimes he calms the storm, and other times he calms his child. One Bible scholar puts it this way. Our faith will be most stable if we center it on who Jesus is. Faith urgently needs to know not so much what Jesus will do or what promises he may have made that are applicable to this or that situation, but who Jesus is, we discover with increasing delight that Jesus is always far more wonderful than we had anticipated. Well, let's move on. Uh, Secondly, in terms of who Jesus is, we see Jesus' power over demons. 
so interesting that at the end of the first miracle, the disciples ask, who is this? And in the second miracle, the demons tell them. Verse 28, when he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? I don't want to get into too much discussion about demons and the demonic, mainly because the Bible warns us against taking too much interest in these things. But demon possession can be defined as the indwelling of unseen evil spirits in a way that prevents an individual from fully controlling his or her actions. Matthew tells us that these men were so violent that no one could pass by. Uh, in his account on this, of, of this incident, Mark talks about the harm that at least one of the men was doing to himself, cutting himself with stones. And as I said, the, the demons have greater insight into who Jesus is than the disciples do. They address him as the Son of God, and they recognize that Jesus has the power and the authority, the right, to command them. It's also interesting that the demons recognize something of the already and not yet aspects to Jesus' reign. Uh, we spoke about this last time in terms of healing. But they say, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? The demons recognize that there is a day when Jesus will finally destroy them, but that day is not yet. That day is not even Good Friday when Jesus will strike a decisive blow against Satan and sin and death. There is a final day, the appointed time, when Jesus will cast Satan and his followers into hell. But that time is not yet. And so between the cross and Jesus' final coming, sin and sickness and death are still a part of our fallen world. But there is an appointed time, and Jesus is in control of it. We read on from verse 31, the demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, uh, the Greek phrase is almost equivalent to when you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those of us who like bacon for breakfast and pork for supper feel a little bit sentimental towards these pigs. <laughs> Uh, the Jewish people had no such sentimental attachments towards pigs. They were unclean animals. Uh, these, Matthew's readers would have known that these farmers had no right or, uh, to, to breed these pigs or make their living from them in the first place. Uh, this might have taken place in Gentile country, no matter. These are unclean animals. But the destruction of the herd of pigs was just a wonderful visual demonstration to these men that the demons had left. They could see it. It also shows something of the nature of demons, that they're powerful and they're destructive and they hate their creator and they hate their, his creation. This is a graphic illustration of what Jesus says in John 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But here we see Jesus is Lord over all the forces of Satan. In verses 33 and 34, we see one group of people's response to Jesus already. 
Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all of this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. They cared more about pigs than they cared about people. And these people do what men and women have done down through the centuries. They push Jesus out of their region. They don't want anything to do with him. They can see clearly who he is. But their other priorities, their livelihood, their finances, their dreams, their hopes take priority. They don't want to even to contemplate the implications of what having this man near them might mean for them personally. I was going to look at one other aspect, but we'll skip this part. You owe me five minutes for another sermon. (laughs) We've looked then at who Jesus is. Let's look at two responses to Jesus. We've already looked at one uh, in this uh, little town, but let's move on. Because Matthew, at the beginning of the passage, speaks about two men, two would-be disciples, who having seen all that Jesus has done previously, say, we want to follow you. But each of these men have a problem. The first man is a teacher of the law, and his problem seems to be that of over-eagerness. Verse 19, the teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. This man is very respectful. He himself is a teacher of the law. He spent his entire life studying the Hebrew Scriptures. And he comes to Jesus, who's a carpenter, and addresses him as teacher. He clearly saw something in Jesus' life. But you know, respect for Jesus isn't enough. There are many people who look at Jesus and respect him as a fine moral teacher. There are many people in our churches who believe that going to church and having a good set of morals is the right thing to do. But mere respect for Jesus is not enough. Jesus isn't looking for admirers. He's looking for followers. This man's stated commitment to Jesus is very strong. I'll follow you wherever you go. And that's worth thinking about. Is that my estimation of Jesus? Is he someone whom I would follow to the ends of the earth? Is he someone of whom I can truly say he is my reference point for my entire life? That's what this man says, and yet Jesus senses that this man hasn't fully understood the implications of what it means to follow him. And so he gently points out to the man some of the difficulties involved in following him. He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. These verses remind us that following Jesus will cost us everything. Salvation costs us nothing because Jesus has freely paid our debt on the cross. Salvation is by grace alone. And yet on the other hand, salvation costs us everything. It's a little bit like marriage in one sense. You know, there's great joy in standing up in church and committing yourself uh, to one person till death you do part. But that commitment, if taken seriously, changes your entire life. There isn't a single area of your life that isn't affected by this new relationship. And similarly, a decision for Jesus is the biggest decision of them all. Bigger than what career you'll choose bigger than which person you'll marry, it will affect every area of our lives. 
It changes our priorities. It changes our perspective. It changes our values. It might mean that we have to give up some things, a habit, maybe even a relationship. Loyalty to Jesus brings with it demands that might be costly. And then Matthew mentions another would-be disciple. If this first man's problem was over-eagerness, then this man's problem is under-eagerness. If you have a look. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go bury my father. I don't think this means that this man's father had just died, because if that had been the case, this man would have been at the funeral. Funerals took place really quickly, um, and he would have been not with Jesus, but been with his family organizing the funeral. It seems more, more likely that he's saying, well, my father's getting old, and I want to wait until he's died. Maybe because his father wouldn't have approved of him following Jesus. Uh, more likely, he wants just to wind up uh, his father's estate and, and all of those things. But whatever the situation, Jesus calls this man to a higher devotion. Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Let the spiritually dead, those who've ignored God's tug on their heart, who've never responded to the call to discipleship, let them make things like death and funerals and the reading of wills and the settling of estates their top priority. You follow me. I think this man's main difficulty is revealed in two little words. Those words, but first. And that's often where our main difficulty lies too. I want to follow Jesus, but first I want to do this thing over here. Maybe there's an action over here that actually you're a little ashamed of and you're not quite ready though to give it up just yet. Or maybe it's something quite innocuous. Maybe it's a life goal. Nothing bad in itself. I want to get married first or have children first or study first or get a job first. The problem is there is always a but first. And when we've finished that but first, there is another and another. Following Jesus means that he is first. We sing about that in a hymn sometimes. Because the English is a bit old, we can lose the impact of what we're actually singing. But we sing, be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Naught be all else to me, save that thou art. Let there be nothing else that is all to me, except you yourself. Thou and thou only, the first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Is that my commitment to Jesus? So interesting, Jesus says to this man, follow me. He's getting into a boat. This is this man's one opportunity. You see, there are moments in the spiritual life and in ordinary everyday life too where decisions that need to be made can be put off no longer. Do you know where that expression to draw a line in the sand comes from? The very first line in the sand apparently wasn't actually a line, it was a circle. In 168 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes, a Hellenistic king, was leading an attack on Egypt, uh, to which the Roman Senate was very opposed. And before he reached Alexandria in Egypt, he was met on the road by a single elderly Roman ambassador named Gaius Popilius Laenus. And Laenus told Antiochus that the Roman Senate demanded that he withdraw his troops from Egypt. 
And Antiochus said, well, I'll think it over. At which point, the Roman envoy drew a line in the sand around Antiochus and said, before you leave this circle, give me a reply that I can take back to the Roman Senate. And Antiochus knew that if he stepped out of the circle without promising to withdraw, then he would effectively be at war with Rome. And so he did, in fact, withdraw. There are some decisions that you just cannot put off. And I wonder if for someone here this morning, that time has come for you now. (laughs) You've been coming to church for weeks. Perhaps you've been coming to church for years. And you've been holding Jesus at arm's length. There's something in your life that you know you need to deal with, but you've been putting it off. I'll think about this some other time. My dear friend, let me say to you, now is the time of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Before you get up out of your seat, before you leave the little circle around you, won't you commit your entire life into the hands of this man who loves you so much? This morning we've asked the question, along with the disciples, who is this man? And we've seen from Jesus' actions, we've seen from the Old Testament, we've seen even from demons that this is no ordinary man. This is God come in the flesh. But the question of Jesus' identity can never be an academic or intellectual exercise for us. It requires a response. What is that response for us today? Will we push him out of our lives as that little village did, more worried about our finance or our reputation? Will we pay lip service to him and say that we'll follow him anywhere without actually recognizing that there are things in our life that we'll need to leave behind and attitudes and actions that we'll need to take up? Will we try and convince ourselves that we'll make a decision about this later? Or will we look at Jesus as we've seen him this morning in all his power and authority and beauty and say, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all.